Welcome to The Debrief, presented by Ontic Center for Connected Intelligence, where we engage in conversations about topics we've explored and have been observing at the center. Our goal is to foster a deeper understanding of the dynamic operating landscape and bridge the gap between complex topics and practical insights. Join us as we navigate complexities, distill information, and derive insights through engaging conversations and thoughtful analysis addressing the industry's evolving challenges. Okay, well, here we are. Often, the three of us, uh, Fred Burton, Marisa, Dr. Marisa Rondazzo, I stand corrected. Um, (laughs) You hear us on the other side interviewing people asking and pulling insights from them, but we thought it would be good for the three of us to occasionally get together ourselves and unpack and and have an unfiltered conversation about what we're hearing, what we're seeing, and and maybe what, what we've seen over the last uh, three, four, five weeks uh, from the Center of Connected Intelligence. So with that, welcome Fred Burton. Welcome Marisa Rondazzo. Thoughts before we, before we get on to this, uh, this first ever venture from the three of us? I just want to say that from behind the scenes, what folks haven't heard was our all of our technical difficulties just trying to make this work. So I've just I'm just delighted to be here, and I'm not going to touch any buttons. That's all. Or cords. <laughs> or cords. Well, it's I mean, this is more of a look for us again, like I just said, to kind of unpack the things that we've been observing. The thing we often, the three of us are in a lot of meetings with clients uh, or or with other activities, and. We see a lot from our optics, so the the ability for us to get together and and have our own conversation that we just happen to invite others in, I think, is probably powerful and and exciting and fun because it's not something uh, we get to do officially. So here we go. Fred, one of the first things we, we thought about as, you know, the obvious thing is the chronic crisis, also known as perma crisis, that we continue to see Russia, Ukraine, Israel, Hamas. Now we have uh, space threats from Russia that, that have, has just come out. I mean, what should we think about in, in this subject? Well, I obviously drew the, the short straw with, with kicking things off, so I really appreciate that, Chuck. But, uh, you know, it's interesting. I get asked this question a lot, and, you know, I, I feel at times I'm still back in the 1980s with uh, global events the, the way they are, and you start looking at just the evolution of the Cold War, which I never believed ever ended, by the way. And and here we are trying to look at the global landscape. And, and you know, I, I think that's the elephant in the room. I, we get down in the details, I know, with Ontic and our platform from a tactical perspective. But when I said and I talked to global security directors, they really are fixated on the world. And they're looking at the South China Sea. They're obviously looking at the hostilities with the war uh, in Gaza. And certainly the what appears to be an endless campaign by uh, the Russian army to uh, insert themselves into Ukraine. And, and I think it's important to realize that none of these events are going to go away. From a historical context, you can look at this. I don't see a short ending to any of these events. I'm more optimistic that there'll be some sort of resolution in Gaza uh, just with the international pressure there. But as long as that hostage diplomacy continues, Chuck and Marisa, with uh, Hamas holding the hostages, uh, they have a heck of a lot of leverage. And what does that mean for corporations? And I think, uh, you know, we spent a lot of time at Ontec talking about that too and trying to see how our platform can help companies make sense of that. I think it's never been more important to understand your global threat landscape, uh, clearly, 
geopolitics certainly matters in the big scheme of events. And that is something that the C-suite is fixated on and can ask that chief security officer for their thoughts on what does this mean to company X? I mean, oftentimes, if you think about it, we use I use chronic crisis because I, I think we use permacrisis a lot, but I like the idea of chronic crisis and, and also fatigue. I think, Maurice, I've heard you talk about this idea of like just monitoring fatigue. I mean, everything is a thing and everything is a fire. And after a while, I mean, being being the chief fire firefighter, geopolitical firefighter or risk monitor for your company can can somewhat seem very uh, uh, encumbering and mentally taxing. Well, there's a wear and tear on our security personnel. And, and so it's we're, we're focused not only on, OK, where, where are the geopolitical crises? What, what impact do they have on organizations? But but our colleagues who are on the front lines of, of corporate security and organizational security have to have to also be managing the fatigue on their personnel and on themselves in terms of security leadership. And this is also we are still I don't like to reference you know, sort of the post-COVID, but but we are still dealing with impaired employees and impaired leadership to some extent of people who are have been wrestling with their own, you know, personal fatigues, professional fatigues. And we know that when you get signals, the more signals you have to deal with, the more volume of threats that that you've got to face, that it is easy to miss things and is easy to discount things that aren't so immediate. So, so I think as we are talking about global crises and, and chronic crisis, we also have to think about the wear and tear on security personnel and, and how do we support our our colleagues in, in, who are on the front lines of this. Um, and you, we've talked about this a couple of ways. And, and, and one is, um, you know, it, can you ask for more personnel? <laughs> so, you, so people actually get some, some, some time away or, or, or shorter rotation, shorter shifts. Can you use technology to, to, to help do this? And that to us is, is often the, the fastest and most effective way is to how can you use technology as a force multiplier? But also, I think it's really important to, that for security leadership to make sure C-suite knows that there is this wear and tear and, and that it is helpful to hear from C-suite, what are their priorities? Uh, Fred, as you were just talking about, so that they can know what do we need to focus on most so that not every single signal, every single threat is an emergency. So you can triage and, and, and make sure your security personnel are as effective as possible. That's true. And Fred, I've heard like you and I have talked before about the idea of like, look, there's the news, like, you don't. there's a fine line between an intelligence apparatus or a organization's security apparatus being that organization's BBC or CNN or wherever you get your news, as opposed to being an, an, an intelligence provider. I mean, what are your thoughts about how we get succinct in monitoring? You know, if you got to monitor for everything, you're, you're going to miss many things. So what's, what's some advice about getting tight on essentially your intelligence requirements? I know the intelligence cycle is something that's been around forever. Ontic just uh, repurposed the intelligence cycle. We didn't change it, but we just thought about new ways that we can consider. I mean, how do we use that to help monitor against monitoring to be succinct in our organization? Well, I think it boils down to one of the basic premises in this business, whether you're a protector or you're a global security chief, is what's important to your company and what's important to your mission, meaning you're absolutely right. You cannot uh, look at this like you're at the CIA worrying about uh, the global chaos that's taking place. But if you do have personnel traveling to Israel 
for example, right now, obviously that, that changes the equation. Supply chain ramifications with, you know, the Houthi rebels shooting at uh, ships in the Red Sea changes the equation. So you really have to define what are your intelligence parameters. I, you know, look, I know many, many years ago when I first transitioned to the private sector, I had a billionaire ask me, well, what type of security do you think I need? And I said, well, I have no idea. I don't know enough about you to determine who hates you yet to try to recommend (laughs) what kind of protection or what kind of security you might need. And I think at times uh, we tend to back into these things with uh, out having holistic knowledge of what are the threats that are affecting a specific corporation. So you have to define those intelligence requirements first and then do a holistic threat assessment before you can even think about what you're going to to collect against. Yeah, I agree. It all starts, it all starts with a question. And that question is, what is our risk? You know, Hey, I can go, if I'm a publicly traded company, I can go to a 10 K and eight K. If I'm not, I can go to a similar company or if I'm with a high net worth individual, I can examine what their exposure is, you know, in the public, but also it's understanding like, what is that company? I think as you're inferring, what is that corporation organization individuals, uh, appetite for risk? You know, I'm an influencer. I need to be out there. Okay. Well, what, what, what define needs to be out there. Um, so, you know, I think that's important, especially in terms of understanding what the requirements are for, you know, reporting. I, I recently heard a client say, look, I want to know everything there is to know on this subject. And I thought to myself, like, well, yeah, impossible. So what's important to the subject as it stands to your organization's threshold or, or, or what you're working on? I know we just had, um, Speaking of like chronic, chronic risk, permacrisis, we had Suzanne Kelly on the podcast, I think earlier this month from the Cypher Brief talking about permacrisis and then other issues like disinformation and misinformation and how that affects our perceptions of risk. Um, You know, disinformation and misinformation is an incredibly risky threat to the United States. Uh, obviously, it spreads beyond the borders, but just what we've seen with elections and rhetoric and emotion and how outside entities, aka Russia and and now China as well, are able to take a single bit of truth from something and then weave a web of lies around it and then drop that into social media feeds and other places where Americans are so conditioned to get information at their fingertips, to make snap decisions, to reshare things, to believe a headline because they don't either want to take the time or don't have the time to actually read through those first few paragraphs of a story and to apply what I think in the future needs to become basic critical thinking that will help them quickly discern where a source is coming from, if it's a credible place, if the organization that they're in the material that they're reading names sources, if they tell you something about the source, if the source must remain anonymous, including why. Um, I think, you know, having a a country that is full of critical thinkers is going to be a lot better for our future than having a country of people inclined to believe a headline. I mean, any thoughts from either of you about, you know, I think NPR just came out with something saying, hey, look, 
Uh, crime rates are actually getting better, but perception is lagging behind. I mean, any thoughts as to the perception or missing disinformation and, and how that affects, you know, organizations and folks as they monitor risk? So let me weigh in as a social psychologist, perception is everything or, or nearly everything. So we've got to manage risk, but but so much of what we have to do is also manage the perception of risk. Um, and so the, the disinformation issue, I think, is... Um, it is such a, a growing problem for security personnel or, or a growing challenge. We've got to figure out how we get around it. But I keep coming back to as, as we face disinformation and threats that may come in, for example, is it gets back to the basics in terms of investigative skill. Where can we corroborate concerns? And where do we have information to indicate, yes, this is a, a threat or no, it's not. But the second piece of that is, okay, we can we could use our investigative techniques to figure out if something is or is not disinformation information or have a, a, an educated guess. But at the same time, we then ha still have to live with the impact of the perception. So if you've got employees who are terrified about something, it turns out to be misinformation, you still have to, to figure out how to manage that fear. And so there's the additional pressure on security personnel to go back and explain what, what was false or what is in fact the concern. Corporate communications or organizational communications, if you're a CSO or your security leader and you haven't met anybody from that department, press pause, <laughs> go find them, introduce yourself, because that is that is a that is an important third rail to anything happening. Because you're right, absolutely. If the employee perception is everything and everything is a shaping environment, and that it isn't always necessarily an evil thing, it can be a good thing as well to shape like look. Reality is we are safer, or reality is maybe this isn't a great place for you to be. Um, Fred, any thoughts on this? Well, I think one of the biggest challenges going forward uh, for us in this industry is trying to determine what is actually a fact. Mm -hmm. Just because you capture a signal with whatever social media monitoring tool you're utilizing, corroborating that, as Marisa said, is, is so important today. Yep especially as we start approaching, you know, some of these election cycles around the globe and especially inside the United States. You know, speaking of election cycle, Fred, I wish I could say we scripted that, but we didn't. So why don't we segue into that? Because that is the next obvious, you know, big bucket item that we're all kind of watching. And these are water cooler conversations you're seeing happening in a lot of security um, apparatuses and organization is, you know, the potential for election related violence I mean, uh, Council on Foreign Relations came out and they said the U.S. elections is the biggest threat. That's from the Council on Foreign Relations. I, I thought that was a very insightful and, and interesting uh, piece that came out. I mean, Marisa, I know you recently have kind of written about the U.S. elections, but, you know, how should we be thinking about yeah, so so this really is top of mind for so many security personnel, and and we've done a, a I did a blog on this recently. Um, we can reference that in, in just a second, but also as part of a great uh, webinar that the Rain Network did, and and having a conversation around what can organizations do to get ahead of this, to to think about how to prepare for uh, presidential election violence and or disruption, not only around election day, but following and, and then also related to the, the inauguration of the U.S. president in January of 2025 as well. Um, and, and a couple of things that are just kind of like basic strategies, but, but good for preparation. Um, I, I think it, tying into what you just referenced with council on, on um, the, the council's estimate around, you know, hey, this is the biggest risk. I, 
remind me, Chuck, this is the first time the foreign policy experts have actually identified U.S. domestic risk as their biggest concern. I think that's really important to know. Um, I think we all agree that that violence, election related violence right now is is at at its highest likelihood that we've seen, certainly in in recent decades um, within the U.S. And so for our, our security colleagues right now, those on the front lines, this is something that they may not have lived through before. Um, and and I think that there are some basic things that organizations can do to prepare. One is um, just to think through. Okay, we may have some disruptions. So how do we plan for this? You, you've got you've got COVID related plans, hybrid work plans, telework plans, and clement weather plans that you could probably dust off and repurpose for the possibility of disruption to operations. So you know, treat it like a continuity of operations exercise. You know, what do we want to think through? Do we want to make sure make, just have our employees be you know work from home uh, the week of the of the election, for example, just as a precaution, right. depending on where you are, that 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 may make sense. Um, but also getting back to what you were just talking about, Chuck, with having communication for security personnel to be working with your organization's communications experts to think through there may be an impact on security and on inbound threats and threat volume, depending on what our C-suite does related to the election. So they, exactly. if, if our CEO decides to take a position, uh, uh, endorse a candidate, uh, take a position on, on a, an issue that's, that's sort of top of mind in terms of political issues right now, what's going to be the impact on the organization? And, and I have to tell you that, We've worked with enough uh, CEOs over the years in, in all the various security positions I've had. It's a good reminder just now to encourage them, hey, don't. this is not a good time to drink and tweet. Like If you were going to be putting something on social media, think through the implications and work with comms personnel and for comms personnel to work with security personnel. This is a position we want to take. Let's, let's game out how is this going to go and let's be prepared for the backlash and threats that we may get as an organization or as an individual in in the wake of that. Well, just, I just had a thought there. I mean, you think about something you said earlier, like, look, perception is reality for many. And, you know, if I'm the CEO and I'm perceived because I'm wearing a blue shirt right now to be voting a certain way, then, you know, in the larger zeitgeist of those people who might be mentally unstable or for whatever else that becomes, that becomes a position. I mean, Fred, you just, I know recently you had uh, Scott Stewart, you and Stick were on the podcast talking about like swatting and other, mm-hmm. and other threats to folks. I mean, clearly in election season, whether you're a judge or a presidential candidate, these are top of mind. And certainly we've even seen with some of the politicians recently, um, you know, you not only will have the, the, the swatting incidents, but you can have uh, fixated individuals actually try to conduct a vandalism or even get to the point of trying to conduct an attack. Um, and, and so, you know, this is just one part of that continuum. And we really need to, to you know, think of the entire continuum and, and the possibilities there. And, and that really reinforces why it's so important, uh, you know, to, to, to not only identify uh, kind of the grievance collectors, but then to monitor their activities, uh, monitor their communications for indications of an escalation. And from your tracking of this phenomena, from a trending perspective, do you anticipate this to continue? Like, uh, what are some of the drivers that could be behind this? Oh, r- right now, the big driver is the election cycle uh, and, and just really the uh, you know, toxic political environment we find ourselves in in the United States right now.
Yeah, I think so, Chuck. I, uh, there's not a CSO that I don't talk to under the CCI, our center, that doesn't express some concern for the upcoming election. Now, just from an analytical perspective, is that just some biases that are seeping in because of the J6 blowback? I don't know. But from my standpoint, too, from a historical perspective, you know, you go back to, you know, this between 68 and 72, and we had the horrific domestic bombings to include many targeting multinational corporations, some of which aren't still in existence today, but some are legacy. And then you had certainly the targeting of, you know, your ROTC centers and bombs and universities and Kent State. And but you had much more organized terror in that time frame, which I don't think exists today to the degree that it existed in 68 and 72, such as the Weather Underground and, you know, the Cleaver faction of the Black Panther Party, for example, that was behind a good number of these events. So, you know, these lone actors, which we spent a lot of time with clients always discussing like the J6 bomber that still hasn't been identified or caught to the best of our knowledge. Those are the kinds of problems that are going to persist. So geography matters. And the reason I say that is, you know, it's been my hard lesson I've learned throughout my professional career, specifically in the government, in the private sector as well, that, you know, your proximity around certain events or things such as mass protests, or high value mm-hmm. targets certainly equate into your threat landscape. So now's a good time for everybody in this industry to kind of reassess their geography and their footprint uh, to try to assess whether or not what's next to you. Yeah. And I think I go back to something you said, uh, Marisa, which is like the hope is not a plan. No. And, you know, dust dust off or get out that file and look at it and have a, I mean, a tabletop doesn't have to be a, a three-day test. It can be a one-hour coffee or it can be a two-hour uh, dive or it could be a half-a-day session. But you, there's, we should always plan for that, I guess, the flinch. You know, when the, when the thing happens, we have to like, how are we operating as an organization through that flinch so that we can get to the other side of that and start enabling, you know, conversation because I, you know, I, I think I've heard you talk about, uh, before Marisa, like what if you're a smaller organization, not everybody is, is a Leviathan with a a massive, uh, security apparatus, like maybe the secret service or a multinational. I mean, what suggestions would you have doc for, for that smaller organization? You know, small organizations can, can get ahead of the curve here in terms of just reaching out to local law enforcement about, Hey, what, what should we think about? Like what, what happens? How, how should we plan for come over and, and, and have them do a, you know, a site survey if they haven't, um, to just really think like what, what, or what support can we get locally, you know, through a law enforcement, through a fusion center, like, Hey, we're worried about this. So what, what do we need to think about? So use those local resources to help you prepare. And and the other piece I think is really important is whatever you are doing to prepare, whatever plans you may be repurposing, it's really important for security personnel to take that next step and then let employees know that they are thinking through mm-hmm. and planning to do stuff because that gets back to that perception. Okay. If employees feel like, we don't know, are they doing anything? I've, I feel unsafe. You may not be able to share much. You don't have to share much, but just to say, hey, we are thinking this through and and planning for it. And if you have concerns or, or threats that you're aware of, please make sure you let us know. Well, I think you're onto something to be, especially uh, 
people are watching the security or the safety function of an organization. So if you're running down the hall, people are going to wonder. So if you're doing something, you're planning or, or maybe you're, you're exercising, be smart and talk about what you can talk about to put people at ease. We're doing this to exercise a function of the organization that's about safety and keeping employees safe. Because, you know, I know like, well, what are you doing? Well, I can't say, well, nature abhors a vacuum. So do people. And they're going <laughs> to, they're going to try to, they're going to try to fill the void with something. And, and hopefully yeah. it's not a bias induced, you know, like, oh, the, the worst is coming. Fred, any, any additional thoughts on that? Well, I think uh, you both raised very, very good points. And I think the challenge in today's world, which is constantly evolving, is, again, our 24 by 7 news cycle where your employees are going to and most likely learn of an event that's transpired at yeah. either the same time your GSAC captures that event or maybe even ahead of that, depending upon uh, what sites they're looking at on any given day. So when you start thinking just from a proactive tool perspective, you know, things can help you get in front of these kinds of issues would certainly be the ability to monitor what is called alternative message boards. Some refer to that as fringe, uh, whatever you want to call that, to try yep. to be able to capture events before they occur. And I think a lot of times, too, though, the C-suite says, well, we only make widget X. Why is this important to us? And, and at times, they don't realize the perception to Marisa's point in the workforce that you're hard-pressed not to have any issue today that doesn't bleed into the workforce in some capacity, even with discussions around the water cooler. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's also a good time, like when we say, like, look, dust off your plants, that also includes from planning and exercising, we can then infer some, I go back to like intelligence requirements, monitoring requirements. You know, often, as you said, Fred, if you have that GSOC or maybe it's your GSOC is really a piece of technology, or maybe it's just somebody sitting in a room doing risk monitoring, like get tight on what those mon what those requirements are. Uh, because that's often, you know, an indicator which becomes a bellwether to to an issue, and there should be no. I mean, you know, black black swans, gray rhinos, they shouldn't they shouldn't be a surprise. You know, I, I go back. I can't think of. I think it's the book's called Predictable Surprises, but there shouldn't be surprises and things that you're already aware of, but you just chose to ignore. All right, I, I've got a question. I know black swans. I'm not familiar with gray rhinos. Educate me. <laughs> Black Swans, the event that you didn't see, like we, nobody saw this happen and we could debate offline and maybe over something stronger than the coffee <laughs> as to whether that gray rhino and, you know, correct me if, if you think otherwise, Fred, is basically the, the thing in the room that we, we see, we kind of chose to ignore it or we kind of, you know, um, put it in a subdued light or obfuscated a bit because, you know, ah, it's not likely. And you'll hear that a lot, uh, you know, as you do briefings for companies, it, it's been my experience that at times there will be a disconnect between even the ELT of a company and the workforce. The EL, you know, the ELT has perceptions of, let's face it, everybody wants to make their numbers this quarter, growth, but on a practical level, behind the scenes, you still have your workforce that's very closely monitoring whatever that localized event might be. Uh, or some of these hot button topics that are consistently, you know, drift into the workplace, even if it's on Slack. 
Well, and I actually yeah. think it's it's a good reminder. First of all, thank you because now I'm now I'm smarter than I was a few minutes ago. Um, but but I also want I think it's important as a reminder for CSOs and security personnel generally that in a way it doesn't matter where the threat comes from when you become aware of it. And if it's from the social right. media water cooler or, you know, virtual water cooler or, or something inbound, something you're monitoring and in, in unmonitored, uh, you know, those, those you know, new social media channels, wherever it comes from, you can use a, a, a process that's kind of recognized as best practice, use a, a behavioral threat assessment process to figure out, is this something or mm-hmm. is it nothing? And if it's something, what can we do to mitigate? So we, we can, it's easy for us to get focused on, you know, is this a, a, a geopolitical threat? And we've got employees scared of, of coworkers because of things that they're posting on social media in support of or against the Israel-Hamas war, for example. We can still look at that as behavior and use the same process. If something is coming in that looks like a, a threat related to Russia or Ukraine or, or shipping in the Red Sea, we can still look at the behaviors behind it. Is there planning? Is there furtherance of an, of an idea? Is it, is it grievance-based? Whatever the case may be, what's, what's this person trying to accomplish with this threat? What's this group trying to accomplish with this threat? And then look at ways to, to mitigate, harden the target, uh, work directly with the person of interest, whatever tools we have available. And I think it's an important reminder, it, it's easy for us to get caught up in where's the threat coming from and what is sort of the threat of the day. Yes we can still use this process regardless of where these are coming from. Well, Marisa, that's very like, uh, I guess it's called like first principle thinking. Like, like we have the issue, we have to go back, have to get rid of the assumptions and kind of break it down into a format, re-examine the format and then say what it is. And I think that's, I think that's a, that's something that CSOs and, and uh, risk leaders need to do as well. Like, just like, oh, we've seen this before, make it happen. Or we've seen this before, just go like we should always have that brief moment where we're like, is everything we know still true? And let's examine. Mm. And that should happen after the fact, too, uh, of any issue. So I, I like that. And then using models to go in and enforce yourself or have a forcing function to say, is it a threat? Yes, no. Get your bias out of it and kind of go through um, a process of you will. And then if it gets to a process and it looks like a threat, well, we need to examine this more and put resources around it. Yeah, 100%. Um, one other item I think is probably beneficial for us to talk about because in some ways, uh, it it's something that will affect most security organizations who operate in, in California, which is California Senate Bill 553. And Marisa, why don't you just kind of walk us through what this is? Yeah, sure. So... Um, <laughs> This right now is a legislation that passed quickly in California. It is essentially a requirement for virtually every California employer to have a workplace violence prevention plan. A couple of exceptions. Uh, doesn't apply to hospitals and healthcare because they already have their own standards and requirements. Doesn't apply to law enforcement. But but for any company, 10 employees or more, this is a new requirement that's going to go into effect July 1. Um, and it's got some specifics to it, but generally it requires companies to have a workplace violence prevention plan plan. It requires them to track, keep track of all their incidents as some way to to capture these incidents in a log and then be able to look back and look at trends. You know, where where did we have workplace violence 
violent incidents and threats in the past year? What, what can we be doing better, for example? It also calls for employee involvement. And this is really interesting because I haven't seen this in terms of the American National Standard on Workplace Violence Prevention. One thing that's interesting about the California legislation is it really calls for employee involvement in identifying threats and hazards and, and violent incidents in looking at developing the plan, implementing the plan, which is interesting because it kind of gets back to this perception issue that we were talking about. Well, we have a one, gen, one July deadline too, which is yeah. going to be, I mean, again, like speaking of gray rhinos in terms of like a legislative gray rhino. I, I think this is, so many companies probably already have something in place but especially the the requirement to keep track of these and that these data have to be made available not at a moment's notice, but in short order to um, for the California OSHA, so to Cal OSHA, if they need it. So th- if they have a plan and they've had a plan in place for a while, great. But this requirement to now start keeping a log of these incidents, keeping track of them, be able to run metrics and reports is something that I think may be new to many, many employers in California. And the one piece I want to uh, uh, emphasize here is that I don't think this is going to be limited to California for very long. California is the first state, but we have seen California really be the bellwether for cutting edge security legislation in other domains. They were the first state to to create anti-stalking laws. And now every state has an anti-stalking law. Mm -hmm. They were the first state to create these emergency risk protection orders, this sort of restraining order to separate someone from their weapons temporarily if they pose an imminent risk of harm to to self or Mm -hmm. others. And now I've lost count. I think 27 states have have ERPA laws or or similar red flag laws. So I don't think this is going to be limited to California for very long. Um, So if you're not a California-based employer, watch, watch this space. This may be coming your way soon as well. Well, Fred, you're a former CSO. You're the CSO. You walk in, we're in a room and you're like, hey, this law just enacted. We're a California company. What's our like, what's our next 30 days look like? By the way, we still have all the other stuff we've been talking about on this podcast to deal with. Sure. Well, I, I know I would be wanting to work very closely with uh, my legal department and HR to try to determine what process and procedures do we have in place with luck. With a footprint in California, hopefully you do already have good reporting mechanisms and so forth. Uh, but I've got a question for you, Marisa, on this. And and uh, as you drill down into this bill, I, I, I don't know the answer to this question, and maybe you don't either, but does this affect remote employees in any capacity? I know the surface, like during COVID, with, you know, the, the domestic dispute that happens in the work, you know, in your home, while that employee's on, uh, you know, on the clock, so to speak. So... What's your take on that? Yeah, that that actually is another one of the exemptions in the bill. So the few uh, for fully remote employees, it does not apply. Um, but I think that we've got so many operations now; fewer and fewer operations are now fully remote. Um, we have much more that are that are hybrid. So it's a it's good news in a way that it takes the pressure off because what what so many of us were struggling during COVID was where does that line end in terms of our protective responsibilities. If our employees are at home, we saw a lot of security uh, departments do some really creative things with helping helping to brief employees on how do you, you know, how do you purchase a good video doorbell? Like what are what are some things that you can be doing in your own? It does draw that line now for California employers. If you're fully remote, that it does not apply to those employees. 
Marisa, it kind of makes me think of uh, you had Wendy Bailey from Capital One on on the Women Who Protect podcast earlier this month, and kind of what they what that company did to address like aftermaths of incidents and all. I know that's not completely to Senate Bill five five three, but I I think I go back to communications and the holistic security approach. Yeah, actually, it's really fascinating. It's, it was a great conversation with Wendy, and I really appreciated the chance to talk with her. But something she shared with me, I had not heard any other corporation or organization do previously. They've gone beyond... They, they have a, a threat assessment management team, which is also part of the California bill. You've got to have assessment procedures mm-hmm. to handle threats. Uh, so they have a threat assessment management team like many organizations do, and it's considered best practice. But they've gone beyond to have um, what they call a care team, a Capital One care team. And that care team's responsibility is really to help support in the aftermath of the unlikely event of a violent incident. But in the aftermath, should one occur, what can they do as a company to already support, you know, to support their employees, to think through how do we put something in place now so we're not in a reactive posture? If violence should occur and impacts our employees, our facilities, our, our customers, etc. So they're already thinking through what support measures can we get in place. One thing she emphasized was that she thought it was really important if, if violence or threats occur, that the person across the table talking with the impacted employee, their family, is someone from Capital One. It's not outsourced. So that they're, they're speaking the same language. They're from the same family, uh, organizationally speaking. Um, so it was, really, it, was, it was fascinating to hear. Adding that touch to where like, hey, we're going to we're going to be here for the employee to help walk you through it with that. I mean, we have we have national culture, country country culture, city, local, but then there's also company and corporate culture that goes on top of that. Have somebody there that walks through that. That can speak your language. I go back to communication, that very important partnership that I think is often either understated or or sometimes just ignored in in uh, organizations. And it gets back to empathy. I mean, we've just started talking about this and it's probably a conversation for another day, but um, there've been a number of speakers and and I got a chance to to speak on this at the uh, the winter conference for ATAP, the Association Mm -hmm. of Threat Assessment Professionals last week on how how do you involve, is there a role for empathy and compassion in this work in violence prevention and and, in corporate security? The answer is yes. Um, But this is sort of, this is a great sign what Capital One is doing of, of showing that empathy and compassion up front. We care about our employees they, these are these we care about our workforce and so here are the things we're going to do to 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 show you that um, the care team is something that w- is new to capital one we just started that in may of last year we're not we're not quite at our year anniversary yet um, but we had the uh, you know we did everybody does the preparedness drills you do the tabletops you you do the active threat um, exercises. And, you know, when you sit down and you look at where your opportunities are, um, we noticed that our opportunity was, you know, what do we do after the fact, right? So, you, you know, when everything's over, now we have to take care of the people who are who are here, are left behind, injured, witnesses, the families of those folks. So um, we put the care team together specifically for a potential casualty situation where we could liaison with our internal resources and external partners and be able to help them help our associates, right? So we've done a lot with building our relationships with um, agencies where we have people centers, 
um, understanding what their procedures would be in that type of situation and how we can potentially plug into that to to make it easier for them um, and be prepared, you know, in case we really need that support for, for the families. Well, and I know, Antic, just uh, I think our own uh, Cindy Marbles and Sam Scanlon from Antic uh, just hosted a webinar on Senate Bill 553. I think that was on the 21st of, of February. So I would say if you want to know more, I mean, obviously, you could reach out to any of us, but you could also probably go get the re- repeat of that webinar and, and find some goodness in that to kind of set your framework. Exactly. It's been a month and this has been great. I mean, how often, again, we got to sit down. It's just like we're all here in Austin having a cup of coffee and inviting a bunch of other folks to uh, to participate. I I think as we as we move to kind of close this one up, I mean, uh, Fred, any any thoughts or, or additional insights from you? No, I think, uh, well, maybe so, Chuck. I, uh, first off, it's, uh, it's an honor and a privilege to be able to chat over these issues, uh, uh, not only every day, but in this kind of format too. And I would just reach out to those that, that perhaps take, the, perhaps take the time to, to listen to this podcast. We're, we're always looking for engaging guests, uh, different topics. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, don't hesitate to reach out to any of us or to drop us a line and, and recommend somebody. Uh, we've gotten a lot of our Can guests. Can I give him your cell phone, Fred? No, no, please <laughs> don't. But uh, we've gotten a lot of our lot of our uh, guests via recommendations. So we'd love to hear from the the audience. And if you found this discussion engaging, please let us know too. Doc, what about you? Any any final thoughts or insights as we we think about closing this uh, this first episode up? No, I just think that, um, like Fred was saying, I, I love a chance to have these conversations. These are conversations that that we have in the office. Uh, by Zoom all the time, just sort of talking off top ahead what's what's worrying us, what's concerning us, and and would love to get input from from those who are listening in about if there are particular topics or questions they want to hear us uh, try to tackle. Well, let's be honest. The hardest thing was like figuring out what three things we want to bring up. I mean, there's <laughs> like especially now. I mean, I mean, I think we had to have a whole meeting behind the meeting just to choose what three things we're going to talk about. Yeah, but I'll be honest, the hardest thing for me was the technical aspect too. I couldn't get the settings right. So again, I consider this a win. I'm not going to unplug anything. I'll just be ready when we're ready to, to record our next one. Hey, as podcasters, we're good security practitioners. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thanks everyone for listening in. And as as both my esteemed colleagues, Dr. Marisa Rondazzo and the professor Fred Burton said, if you have ideas or or you have a, a subject or, or something interesting, please reach out. This audience and the Center for Connected Intelligence and the Protective Intelligence Podcast is built on a protective intelligence honorees and this great community that that uh, that we've enabled throughout the years. So thank you. Thank you so much. And we will see you soon. This episode was brought to you by the Ontic Center for Connected Intelligence. Learn more at ontic.co slash center. Again, that's ontic.co slash center. It was produced by AJ McKeon. Please remember to rate and review our podcast on iTunes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. You can reach us at podcasts at ontic.co or visit ontic.co slash center for more information. Thanks for listening.
Thank you.